And this is Reset. I'm Michael Puente, in for Sasha Ann Simons. Chicago saw more than 800 homicides in 2021, the highest in 25 years. And when you talk to experts on how to reduce that violence, you hear the need for programs like this. Small micro-level interventions to target gun violences in the streets. One type of intervention is street outreach. But the folks doing that on the ground work deal with trauma every day, and they need help. You're so invested in trying to impact one single life at a time that you forget about yourself. These courageous men and women who does this work on the ground, uh, we have to provide the resources for them. A new survey from the University of Illinois Chicago shows that 76% of street outreach workers witness a traumatic death on the job and that four in five have at least one symptom of PTSD. Assistant Professor Catherine Bocanegra conducted the survey and she joins us now. Welcome to Reset, Catherine. Hi, thank you for inviting me to be a part of Reset today. Great. Also with us is my WBEZ colleague, criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Mike, good to be on with you. Great. Catherine, what made you want to survey outreach workers about their experiences? Sure. Well, as I shared with Patrick last week, what led me into this study is an acknowledgement of my own shortcomings and failures and ways in which I could have done better for the outreach workers that I supervised when I was doing violence reduction work in Little Village. And so it was my practice experience that informed the questions I asked. And I think this is really important to explain that On the outside of academia, we tend to think people with the three letters PhD after the name are experts on topics and more knowledgeable than the rest of us. However, people who are doing the hard work of violence reduction, they're the experts, and they know the challenges intimately. And so have we given people who are doing anti-violence work the platform to talk about their challenges and the supports they need? And I would argue that, no, we haven't. And so that was the motivation behind the study. Catherine, describe for us what a typical day looks like for one of these three dozen folks you surveyed. What what does it look like? Sure. So the interviews that we did, um, these were in-depth interviews. Many lasted over an hour. What they described their work looking like um, was, first of all, that it was a 24-7 job. It doesn't neatly fit into the 9-to-5 work um, routine that they are constantly available to the people in the community to respond to a shooting, to a homicide, and then providing extensive follow-up to families, to survivors of violence, attending funerals, organizing community responses, and then mediating retaliation and conflicts afterwards. In addition to providing really like necessary case management services, helping people find housing and jobs, accessing mental health supports. So they wear many hats. One of the outreach workers that we interviewed said that, you know, we we have four job titles in one, and many people expect us to be miracle workers. Catherine, we highlighted a couple of eye-opening results already, including the fact that 80% of the people surveyed are experiencing at least one symptom of PTSD. What else did you find? Sure. So when I first started in this field, an outreach worker said to me that, Everyone has bad days at work, but when we have a bad day at work, people die. And this statement reflects the enormous pressure and responsibility our city's community violence intervention workers face. And we need to do everything possible to support individuals on the front line of waging peace in their communities because their success can be measured in human lives. 
So when we listen to community violence intervention workers describe trauma in their own terms, what we actually found is that PTSD isn't a really great way to frame their experience. Um, the P in PTSD refer, means that the traumatic experience is over in the past. It's not present and continually recurring. However, community violence intervention workers report constant fear of death and violence, and they experience this every single day of work, even when performing mundane tasks like visiting a client or attending a community event. We had one uh, outreach worker say that they're constantly making sure they take photos to commemorate um, the time they spend with their client because they never know if this will be the last time they see them. So for, for most of us, we would say that a constant fear of death and violence is pathological, that it's not healthy and that it needs to be treated. But for the street intervention workers, we find that fear of violence and death is normal. It's a normal emotional response and it's probably keeping them safe over the course of their work. So what we believe they're experiencing is actually something called continuous traumatic stress. There is a real, often faceless and unpredictable yet substantive threat of harm in the present or future. And the fear for their safety and their clients' lives is real and tangible, but it carries over to other areas mm -hmm. of their personal life. And so what I want to highlight here is that their trauma responses are normal given abnormal circumstances. And so we need to change the context in which this work is taking place which we've focused on through our website, www.streetsupport.org, on ways in which organizations can come around the street intervention workers on the front line of doing anti-violence work. All right. Well, Patrick Smith, uh, what stuck out, stuck out to you most in the answer the workers gave in this survey? Well, you know, I think what stuck, st stood out to me was partially was some of the specific examples that, that Professor Bocanegra included in the work, you know, workers talking about having panic attacks, violent nightmares. It really hit home for me the way that this trauma impacts me, impacts people. I mean, in a way, it felt like something I, I knew from reporting on anti-violence work. Like, like it's almost kind of obvious. Of course, this is upsetting and traumatic to do this work. But I don't think I had ever really sort of grappled with with the scope of that and what the, what the impact was on individuals. Uh, one other thing that really stood out to me uh, from P Professor Bocanegra's work was this idea that, you know, sort of one of the main tenets of this kind of anti-violence work is something called lived experience. And it means that uh, many of the people doing the work, not all of them, and this isn't what defines them, but many of the people doing the work, have some some something in their past, some other past involvement with gun violence, either as a victim or a perpetrator, and, and they're using that experience to try to prevent future uh, future shootings. But what that means is that they're constantly – I don't know if they're reliving their past trauma, but they're constantly interacting with that trauma that, that, that happened to them or that, that they were a part of when, when they were younger, and that really st stuck with me as – as 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 an extra impact on, on the people doing this work, Patrick, did anything surprise you in this survey? You know, I, I can't say that I was surprised by any of it because, as I said, you know, the fact of it is uh, is obvious. These are people going out to the most violent parts of the city, talking to the people who are the most likely to shoot or be shot. Of course, that's traumatic. Um, but but I, I I think it just really resonated with with me in a way that that maybe it hadn't before. Now, Patrick, we heard from anti-violent outreach worker Orlando Mayorga in our intro saying the work was so all-consuming that he forgot to take care of himself. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and his experience? 
Yes, so 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 Orlando Mayorga now uh, works in Lieutenant Governor uh, Juliana Stratton's office. Uh, he's a policy coordinator there. Before that, he worked with an organization called Pr- Precious Blood Ministry on Chicago South Side, and his main job was was working on people returning home from prison. Um, and you know, he told me when I was talking with him that that the work he was doing it strained his relationships with his friends and family and his romantic partner. He said he lost sleep and gained weight from doing the work. You know, he, he, he had tears in his eyes telling me about one young man that, that he knew from Precious Blood who, who, who lost his life to violence. Uh, and he said he had a lot of people telling him, you should go see, you should go talk to someone, you should see a therapist. And he resisted it for a long time saying, you know, I'm essentially a therapist for all these other people. What does it say about me if I need help? But he said that he did eventually, uh, you know, just agree that he needed to speak with someone professionally and that that helped him. But obviously the, the pain of, of something like, like, you know, getting close to a long, young person and leaving them, no matter how much get, help you get, that's still going to be an upsetting and, and traumatic thing. And so I, I know he still carries that with him, but, but I also think he's, he's maybe in a healthier place now, a happier place. Sure. Catherine, would you say Orlando Mayorga's story is similar to the stories of other men and women who work as anti-violent outreach workers? Absolutely. Um, but I also think I just want to say that Orlando's a really remarkable person. I'm so thankful that he's in the leadership position that he's in right now. But the um, I think he highlights a really problematic way we think about self-care. So there's a lot of privilege loaded into the term of self-care. Like we think about yoga, candles, baths, etc. But in street intervention work, people conceptualize that their self-care is their work, right? Um because of their personal experiences of exposure to violence and that many are system survivors, they find healing through their work. So how can you tell somebody who finds healing through their work to not work so that they can heal? It doesn't make sense. Um, so the workplace must be a place that restores the person and heals their wounds because street intervention work is a collaborative and collective and relational endeavor. So healing should be collaborative, collective, and relational as well. And we shouldn't just put the burden on the individual to go out and seek their own resources to help them with whatever they're struggling with. This is Reset. I'm Michael Puente in for Sasha Ann Simons. We're talking about the stress and trauma anti-violence outreach workers in Chicago face on the job and what can be done to help them. Our guests are WBEZ's Patrick Smith and Catherine Bocanegra, an assistant professor at UIC who recently surveyed three dozen outreach workers about their experiences. Coming up in about five minutes, there are very few black firefighters in Chicago. We hear about efforts to change that. Catherine, we saw more than 800 homicides in Chicago last year and thousands of shootings. I imagine the rise in violent crime we've seen during the pandemic has made things even more difficult for anti-violence workers. Absolutely, because they're connected to not only each one of those victims, but in research, we believe that every homicide victim is connected to at least seven to ten people in their immediate networks who suffer that loss. And street intervention workers are part of that that network as well. So there's, I would argue, there's nobody who feels that loss more acutely than the street intervention workers that we interviewed as part of the study. Now, Patrick, you also spoke with Tony Salam from from Ready Chicago, one of the city's largest anti-violence programs. What did he have to say about the pressured workers in their pro- program face? Yeah, we we heard a little bit him of him right at the, right at the top of this conversation. You know, talking about how much 
courage it takes to do this work and how much support the people doing this work need. Um, you know, one thing that he talked about was that, that it's inevitable in this kind of work that, that you're going to work with people who ultimately lose their life. I mean, the whole point of the work is that you're working with people who are really on the edge of violence. And so that necessarily means, unfortunately, that there's going to be some death. And he talked about what a toll that can take on workers. Uh, you know, he said that, 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 that workers need a dedicated mental health person in their organization who's only for the employees as one example of things that, that the, the people doing this work really need uh, to support them. Patrick, Ready has more resources than than many smaller anti-violence efforts. Is Ready able to provide its anti-violence workers with the resources they need? Well, I, I think that depends on who you ask. You know, he laid out for me what what they've got, uh, including you know, Ready is funded by by an organization called Heartland Alliance, which is this really big nonprofit. He said that they have mental health professionals that are affiliated with Heartland that are available to the people who do outreach work for, for Ready. He also talked about they have a plan in place for what happens when when they lose a participant or a client, when a participant or client is killed, and, and specifically what happens to support the workers who, who worked most closely with with that victim. Uh, and that's something that speaking with Professor Bocanegra, you know, she told me is is so important, but that a lot of organizations do not have just a plan in place for, okay, this is going to happen, unfortunately, what do we need to make sure that the workers who are most affected by this loss that she was just talking about get the support and help that they that they need immediately after? Professor Bocanegra, let's talk about solutions. What would an ideal support system look like for anti-violence workers? I'm so thankful you brought that up because that's what brought us to, you know, that's what brought me to the table um, with this project is identifying solutions, identifying support. So on our website, www.streetsupport.org, we have over 30 training modules for organizations to engage with so that they can move towards healing-centered, trauma-responsive practice. Um, these resources cover all sorts of areas of organizational practice through how you hire people, how you plan for crises, what you do when somebody is struggling in their workplace performance, what happens when a client is killed, um, all of these points of stress that were articulated by our street intervention workers, we've identified ways in which organizations can begin to render support for them without any additional funding, although additional funding is super important and necessary, and I'm thankful for the expanding pot of resources for this work. So there's things that can be done right now, right now to better support street intervention workers, and we hope that organizations will move in that direction. Well, Patrick, what do you think more the maybe the, more the governor or the mayor should be doing to support these the mental health and well-being of these anti-violence workers? Well, I think what's most important for policymakers, you know, whether that's the mayor or the governor or other people making decisions about funding, um, is if we are going to fund this kind of work and if we are going to say that this is an important part of of trying to reduce violence and prevent shootings. And, and that's something the mayor, the governor, even the president have said that, that yes, this has to be part of the solution. If we're going to do that, I think we as, as a public have to make sure that the funding for that programs ha includes money for supporting the mental health care and the well-being of the people actually doing this work. You know, a lot of these organizations talking to them, they're, they're, you know, they're, Every dollar they get, they're putting into violence prevention work, and it makes sense. That's that's what they're doing. This is a crisis we need to address. And they're also always trying to make sure that they're going to have enough funding for the next year and the year after that 
And so making sure that the funding, if we're going to fund this, that the funding is consistent, is something that, that organizations can rely on, and also that has parts of it that, that maybe mandate or, or at least allow for health, mental health support for the employees and not just for the people, you know, the, the clients or the participants out on the street. Professor, we got about 30 seconds left. What do you hope your average Chicagoan will take away from the survey you conducted? From, you know, from the interviews, I hope that they take away that safer communities need a healthy front line and that we can all play a part in supporting street intervention workers. Every member of the community can play a role in supporting their work and that we need to make sure that they feel that support so that they're most effective and impactful in their community engagement and anti-violence efforts. And that was Professor Catherine Bocanegra from UIC and WBEZ's Patrick Smith. Patrick and Catherine, thank you so much.